Not Safe for Network. I'm Biggs. And I'm Carl. So we don't have Brandon today. He's off in LA like we talked about last week. We're also not doing Loki because we had to record this a little bit early. So we will catch up on episodes three and four next week. But we got some reviews here all the same. I went and saw A Quiet Place Part 2. Okay. This movie was very serviceable. Sequel was fine. Like, it was a fun popcorn experience. I enjoyed it. It was not a bad movie by any stretch. I would say it pales in comparison to the original. And the reason is the theme is very generic in this one. Whereas I think the theme in the previous one resonated with me a little bit more. Because in the first movie, essentially, it's talking about being a parent and the fear of things happening to your kids. And will you be able to pull them through? Okay. And that's all over in that movie. Have you seen the first Quiet Place movie? Uh-uh. So it literally starts out, and it was in the trailer, but they didn't show you what happens. But it's the opening scene of the movie. It's the inciting incident. They're being very quiet. They go to the store. They're picking up things at the store, and this kid gets this little airplane out of the store. And then he's walking along a track at the end, and then he presses a button on the airplane. And it's a little kid. It's like a three- or four-year-old kid. And he presses a button, and it makes the airplane make this giant noise. And it's giant because other than that, it's like the sounds you hear are so muted. You know, like they're even walking across paths in this foresty area and they have sand that's like put out on the path so that you don't get crunching leaves and things like that. And so when it hits it, this kid gets annihilated right away. Like that's how the movie opens. And the entire movie is really talking about like this fear of like, are you going to be able to raise your kids? Are they going to be okay when they're on their own? Things like that. It's like it is in the back of every parent's mind, I think, like just that fear of am I screwing up my kids? Am I going to be able to protect my kids? And it really, really talked to that. And this one, they go to see their uncle, which is... Jim Krasinski's brother. And it's basically a redemptive arc for him. Can I overcome things and be brave? You know, can I be better than I was? That's essentially what the arc is. We have seen this so many fucking times. And so because of that, I would say what was really special about the other movie is kind of gone. Like there's no commentary below the surface it's all right there on the surface so i think most people who are going who just want to go to a movie theater and eat popcorn quietly because you know it it stands out quite a bit in the movie they're gonna enjoy it but i think if you like a little bit more out of a movie you're not gonna find that in this particular one that being said they're setting it up for a franchise for (laughs) sure because this was a success especially like it's the most successful movie out of the pandemic so first one to break 100 million yeah and it's good Like, I'm not meaning to shit all over it. They have an opening scene where they show Krasinski again because he directed it and wrote it like he did the first one. And they show literally right before everything goes to shit, which we did not see in the Mm -hmm. other movie. And so you get a lot of noise and stuff at the beginning, right? And then the monster kind of comes and it ends with them figuring out how to kill the monster because it seems impossible to kill the monsters. So they kind of have that in their back pocket in this movie. So the stakes, even though they work really hard, put the characters in situations where they can't necessarily do something about it. You still have it in the back of your mind of like, well, they can beat it. You know what I mean? So 
that detracts from it a bit. And also they have setups where they can talk normally. Like they have a steel pipe that can go in, for example, that like seals off and they can talk normally in it. And you only got that respite maybe once in the first movie for about a minute where they go by a waterfall and then they can talk normal. But that's like the only thing. So the entire movie, it just like it dappens you with silence. And in this one, they're able to have a lot of loud noises a lot because they find workarounds that make sense. But it also it's another thing that kind of detracts from the original a bit, you know, and I don't know how if you could even get away with that for a second movie. But well, yeah, that's what I'm kind of getting from what you're saying is that I think they kind of had to know that they were never going to be able to recreate the magic of the first movie. Like that first movie that that establishes the world and sets the tone is one of a kind. The more you flesh out a world, the more opportunities you have to create flaws yeah. and inconsistencies. And the original movie if you is one of those that it's like what do they call it like uh a refrigerator door movie where you go see the movie and you have a good time and then you get home and it's like you wake up in the middle of the night for a snack and you go downstairs and you open up the refrigerator door and while you're standing there staring into your refrigerator you're suddenly just like wait why did it take them so long to figure out to use excessive noise (laughs) to stop the creatures that hunt by noise like that seems Do you want me like, to spoiler how they beat the monster in the first one? Isn't it like, well, I know how they, I don't know, in the first movie. Yeah. Don't they just figure out that how to like use excessive noise to hide from the monster? Like the waterfall makes all that noise and. <laughs> they can't hide from it necessarily by doing that. I mean, because like you can make noise to like somewhere to have it go, but they'll just destroy stuff around them too because they're looking for the the thing. So they're very effective hunters. But what they figure out is there's a girl who's deaf in it. One of their kids is deaf and the actress is really deaf too and actually taught them sign language on the mm-hmm. picture. So they incorporated it into the movie, which is just one of those happy accidents that made the movie so much better because it's like, oh, it makes sense that this family could survive because like they all know sign language so they can adapt better than most people can adapt right but what it is is that the father is trying to get a hearing aid for his daughter and he's trying to make one and he's just not succeeding because you can't go to an audiologist right and so he's trying to do it on his own and it makes this horrible tone when he makes the latest one and they just accidentally find out at the at the end of the movie the daughter finds out that the thing is like hurt by it and it's kind of armored naturally but when the sound happens the head opens up a little bit they blow it off with the shotgun but that's the only time they can get to it so this movie is about them finding a way I don't want to give away the whole thing but it's about them finding a way to weaponize that on a massive scale so they don't solve the problem by the end but they're working towards helping out humanity in a way right they have other couldn't solve it otherwise they wouldn't have anywhere else to take the story right the conflict is with the aliens right so as soon as that conflict gets resolved the story's over yeah which is funny because i think about that a lot here's a good uh little side anecdote since brandon's not here to chime in his opinion let's go on a tangent (laughs) fuck yeah the crow (laughs) The Crow, Brandon Lee, 1993. I don't know if that's right. I just wanted that it to rhyme. That sounds pretty just right. just wanted it to rhyme. Uh, 
dude gets murdered, comes back a year later to avenge the death of himself and his uh, brand new bride. And he basically kills his way up the totem pole or ooh, he kills his way up the uh, up the ladder. <laughs> Don't cut my mistake. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was I own my mistakes. Uh, kills his way up the ladder, killing the top dog at the end. Top dollar. He's even the guy's name in the credits. And uh, and then his reward for avenging to her death and his death is that he gets to rest in peace with her for eternity. That all happens in this movie. It ends with him dying, re-dying, whatever. Having his soul so at rest. When there is a there's three sequels. And each sequel is a different person becoming the crow. Because what happens is when a person dies in an unjust way, the crow flies across to the underworld and brings their soul back. So the crow is kind of the connective feature. That's why it's called the crow. Like he's My not understanding a, is that's he's how the comics a, were as well, yes, right? That's, that's the comics. He's not a vigilante superhero named the crow. The movie is called the crow because the crow is Carries like the, the main character. Yeah. Sort of. That uses this it's always, vessel. It's always a, present, right? Like it's always around. When, and like when that dude kills the crow, it weakens Brandon Lee's he, character. The crow doesn't die. It almost dies. It gets oh, shot, okay. but it doesn't die. But his powers are severely limited at that point because the crow is sort of taken out of action at the very least. And then it recovers because the crow is kind of magical too. Yeah. But Bai Ling, <laughs> Bai Ling is in the movie and she eats eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, I didn't his, know that was her. I haven't seen that Ling. since the 90s. She's so. the best. I mean, I know by Ling. I just haven't seen The Crow for and such a long time. She's technically top dollar sister, but they also are definitely have some kind of weird sexual relationship. They just have to throw that in there to make the guy them more evil-ish, right. I guess. How do we make them more evil? Uh, incest. Make them incestuous. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, the sequels were all different characters, but there was also a TV show, The Crow, Stairway to Heaven, it was called. And that show did not tell a new story. That show retold the original Crow story, except because it was a TV show. <laughs> it was they 90% needed... worse. No, <laughs> it was, but also the show needed a reason to keep going so he could never successfully do the thing that he needed to do, which was like take out top dollar and get his revenge. And so the show kind of existed to sort of torment Eric Draven and just like keep him from dying and reuniting with his lost love. <laughs> and I just always really bothered me that like they couldn't understand that that like this story doesn't work if it doesn't reach an ending. Yeah. You can't keep a story like this just going on forever because then all you're doing is like, how do we make this character's life worse? Here's what I would have done if I was them. I just want to say up top, this is an era where they did not think in seasons really. So – and I don't Already know if this, this is show, out of the window. I also don't know if this show lasted beyond its first season. I'm right. pretty sure but it only let's lasted. Say, let's say I'm like making one that lasts or I'm rebooting it or something. Here's what I do. It is a sizable gang that like kills her. They're all complicit in the death somehow, okay? But it gets split up. Maybe they're international. So each season is him tracking a person 
or two people even. Like you want to shake it up a bit. You always want to make it wonder. Like maybe you have two or three pieces on the board each season, but you know that the he's got farther to go to complete the task, right? So you like put little steps to get there, closer and closer. And maybe he gets distracted because he sees somebody in a similar situation and he's like, well, I'm here. I can help this person while I'm on Earth as well, but have him not be distracted by the ultimate goal, right? Like that's the kind of stuff you could have done to make it work. But if you're just going after one person, I'd imagine that gets pretty fucking tedious when they probably have run-in after run-in where the guy escapes, right? Right. Constantly at the last second, he's like getting distracted by something, having to like break away from his actual goal of killing the guy to like rescue some innocent person, probably some hot girl that he isn't going to get with because he's only cares about his dead wife. It just feels cruel to perpetuate that. Yeah. Now I see what you're saying with just making it a really epic story. That's one way to go. You could also go away and where by the every way, plan season, for an ending. You know what like, I mean? Oh yeah. You got a plan. That's where it sets it apart from that era of TV is like, they did not do that shit unless Man. it was a very successful show. And they were like, we can only afford them for one year or the main characters leaving. After I think this it's year. pretty rare that they ever do that though, because like, I think streaming JJ, services do it all the time. They're now. starting to get better at, like writing endings. Yeah. Lost has no ending. That's Abram's problem, right? Historically, is, bad? he's terrible at endings. Is that things. one of the best endings yeah. of a show? I would say it's I, probably the best. He spent a lot of time. I think that he had a, when he when he conceived of the show, he had a vague idea of where it was going to end. Yes. Which gave him the ability to then write that ending when the time came. He also had. Vince Gilligan said he admires hearing people talk about how they had the exact ending that they wanted in mind and they understood the steps to get there and broke it down by season. He's like, my mind doesn't work that way. His idea was starts out as a teacher, ends up as Scarface. That was his whole idea. So he knew he was working towards like a Scarface style ending where like, you know, this guy is going to go down in a hail of bullets, right? And then like, that's it. Everything then, else like, was like him leaving stuff out. And then the, like the ricin, for example, like when he hides the ricin in the uh, the power outlet and you see that come back for like two seasons and little parts, but then it winds up killing Lydia, right? They put that there. They don't know what they're going to do with it. They just drop right. the seed because it seems interesting. And then it's like, they just remember those seeds and come back to them, you know? Well, and like, who knows, like certain characters might become fan favorites because of the actor that they cast. Saul and, was supposed to be one season. Right. And that happens with a lot of people. I think uh, uh, Aaron Paul was supposed to die after four episodes, yeah. like his character. And then the writer's strike happened, or maybe it was six, but the writer's strike happened. And then he had time to rethink how he was going to retool his scripts since he had the time. And he was like, maybe I don't kill him. He's really, really good on the show. And so he rejiggers it to keep him in the show. Yeah, in the uh, in the Timothy Oliphant show Justified, there's a similar thing with Walton Goggins where he was supposed to die at the end of season one, but he was so good that he wound up not dying and then becoming like almost a co-lead with Timothy Oliphant by the end. <laughs> like they started following their both of their storylines like almost with equal attention. Mm -hmm. and Better uh, Call Saul does that too. Yeah. They have this guy who plays a character named Nacho Lopez 
Lopez in it. And this guy is fucking amazing. You've seen him at least once. If you haven't Mm -hmm. seen Better Call Saul, he was in Spider-Man Homecoming. He plays the guy who's going to become the Scorpion, right? Like he plays Matt Gargan in prison. He comes up to Michael Keaton and he's like, so I heard you know who Spider-Man is. And he's like, says something like, yeah, it's that guy. But that guy starts out and you can tell he's probably supposed to have a shorter arc. And he fucking kills it, Carl. Like, he is on the level of Bob Odenkirk and uh, uh, what's-his-face who plays Mike, uh, uh, Jonathan Banks. Yeah. Like, he is on the level of those two. And Rhea Seahorn is really good, too. So the way that that show works now is it's a four-hander. They will take two of their stories and they'll intertwine them for an episode and then they'll do the other two for an episode. So he's like a he's like a, on the same level as the guy who plays Daryl. Yeah. In Walking Dead. I think so. Like winds up just being really good. Like I am based on a character that's not even in the comic book and now suddenly the show's about me. <laughs> yeah. And, and that it, wasn't the intention but it just kind of happened. But that's what has made Better Call Saul so great is I feel like (laughs) they're approaching it from the same angle that they approach Breaking Bad, which is like, we know the end point. We're not sure how we're going to get there. And so if we see something that bolsters it, we'll take it, you know? And that's why I'm going to be honest, dude. Like the last season of Better Call Saul is better than any season of Breaking Bad. Like that show has just gotten progressively better as it's gone along. Is that Vince Gilligan? So Vince Gilligan created it with the guy who wrote Saul in his writing staff for Breaking Bad and I can't remember the other guy's name and then after one season he stepped aside and was like take your show like he mostly just helped with the first season to get it on its feet and help him out but it's pretty much the same writing staff that was on Breaking Bad and Vince Gilligan does help like he is Mm -hmm. an executive producer but is it his show no it's this other guy's show okay it is fucking incredible that this spinoff show is starting to eclipse Breaking Bad. And I don't think it'll ever get the social cachet that Breaking Bad got. You know, it's never going to be like the top rated show or anything like that. But it's really fucking good. And it's popular enough to stay on the air as long as they want it to. So, And it's like Breaking Bad where it's like they're going over this very finite amount of time. And you can tell a lot of stories within this finite amount of time. And they're closing off what happens to Saul in Breaking Bad with one scene at the beginning of each season. And you get a little bit more as to what he's up to after Breaking Bad. And that's just as fascinating as everything else that's happening too. They really kill it. Brandon's tearing his hair out listening to this right now. Why? Because we were talking about Quiet Place Part 2. <laughs> are we not still talking about Quiet Place Part 2? Yeah, we still are. We're getting there. <laughs> All right. So uh, John Krasinski hired Jeff Nichols, who directed Mud, to direct the third one and write it. So this guy is known for every single... TV show or movie that he has written takes place in the South. All of his stuff has a very Southern energy to it. So John Krasinski is like, he's taking it to a place I never even thought of. The South? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. What's happening in North Carolina or something like that? (laughs) Better yet, South Carolina. (laughs) Yeah. Like we've seen how like New Englanders handled this alien invasion, but how did they handle it in the bayou? Yeah, you can't use your fan boats anymore. What yeah. are you gonna do? Oh God, you can't, like you can't even f- use fans, period, or swamp coolers. <laughs> oh God, yeah. As bad as that situation would be, it's so much worse if you're like in a really humid area that's hot as hell. Ugh. So that's all I had on a quiet place part two. Right. <laughs> 
So I guess I'll bring this up. I watched the movie Brandon reviewed a few weeks ago, Wally's Wonderland or whatever, the Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah. And holy shit, it was like so bad, but I could not stop watching it. And I started <laughs> it like I had to work at fucking 4.30 in the morning and I started the movie at like eight and so by the time i finished it i was like way later than i wanted it to be but like i just couldn't stop watching it even though a lot of the movie is just scenes of him just cleaning up the place what the fuck i have a theory which is that it wasn't actually supposed to be a movie it was just this guy was like i need to get this pizza place cleaned up And it's a very expensive way of solving this problem. Well, I can't imagine Nicolas Cage was that expensive. (laughs) He just likes working. So they were like, dude, we got this movie, but we're going to need to do a bunch of scenes of you like cleaning up a bathroom or mopping a lobby floor. Maybe somebody was like, hey, you can do your horror movie about animatronics in my arcade, but you're going to have to clean up. Yeah. And then also like like, that that you can do it for free, but you're going to have to clean every day. And and when he was on break, he would play pinball and they just filmed him doing that because there's a bunch of scenes of just him playing pinball. Is his mouth wide open while he's playing it? Nope. His mouth is never open. He doesn't say a fucking word. Right. And he... His mouth is never, I mean, he grunts a little bit, but his mouth is closed. He's yeah. just silent. You don't need to, an open mouth to grunt. It's mm. just silent the whole time. It's so stupid. Like, a girl will give him a fucking three-minute info dump of exposition about the backstory of the whole thing. And then he just looks at her and then turns around and walks into the other room and downs an energy drink and starts playing pinball some more. This is sounding like my brother-in-law more than it's sounding like a movie. We gotta be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that really bothered me about the movie is that there's this girl in it and she gets all of her friends killed and then is like there and he rescues her at least once or twice from the mo- the robots and then he kills all the robots. Hooray for him. But uh, she gets into his car at the end and it's like, A, like, why does he let her get into his car? And two, like, why does she get into his car? Like, he's literally not said a single word to this person. It does seem like he would take her home and hack her to pieces based off of what you've told me. His name in the credits is just The Janitor. Man, that's not a superhero name. That is a serial killer name. (laughs) So, I don't know. If they do a sequel, she's just going to be him, like, watching TV while she's in a cage in the basement or something (laughs) it was a very strange movie also he just punches the robots to death (laughs) so i mean just give me a fucking break like you have a mop and a broom dude yeah it's a very weird weird ass movie he just beats the robots to death and they're all possessed by serial killers that figured out like we can run this pizza place and work together to kill people basically. But then they get caught and instead of getting arrested, they do a suicide pact with Satan, a satanic suicide pact. And they, they transfer their consciousnesses into the robots. Yeah. I think Brandon covered all this ground. Well, but yeah, but if if he had done it in an interesting way, I would have remembered it. (laughs) 
That's harsh. Just let people know, <laughs> Carl often like reads his phone while Brandon and I are doing our parts. So when, when you get to the beginning of the podcast and you don't hear Carl chiming in, he's usually looking at his tablet. I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never played Words with Friends. <laughs> During a recording. I mean, it just puts you with most of America at this point. <laughs> Screen addiction. I don't remember if he recommended it or not. No, I don't think so. But I think you should watch it. I. He was like, a, it's okay. It's okay to kill time, but it's not a great movie. No, no. It's a, so bad, it's good. It's not an okay movie. It is an incredibly bad movie. But it's bad in kind of the right ways. Like Where this you're is, just like, what the fuck no, were they No, this is thinking? one of the Nicolas Cage, so bad, it's good. Okay. I think it's worth watching. It it goes enough far enough down the spectrum that it kind of whips back around to the other side. Do I you was think torn he has more so bad it's good or more so bad it's bad? Way I feel more like so bad it's good. Me, oh man, I way feel more like it's, so bad it's good. I feel like it's way more so bad it's bad. Are you why? No. Because I feel like the ones that everybody says over and over again are like one third of the movie you've never fucking heard well, of that's all over Europe that no. like you catch on stars late one night and you're like, what the fuck is this? Are you talking about like Drive Angry? No. So that's one that people know about. I'm talking about, I don't know. You're talking he about has, like movies in foreign markets and stuff? I'm t- he works constantly. He has oh, put himself so far in debt that the dude puts out like six, seven movies a year and you only really hear about one or two of them a year and those are usually the so, Bangkok so Dangerous. Bad good that one's not good uh I saw Mandy Mandy was pretty good I I think I texted you that minute and a half long screaming meltdown that he has in yeah. his tidy whities <laughs> while he's drinking and then he's like pouring alcohol into his open wounds and screaming some more and then like screaming while he pours alcohol into his mouth but not directly he has to like hold the bottle over his face so it spills all over him and he's like gargling it and choking on it while he's drinking it and screaming <laughs> by the way uh, so good next week why does this why does he make that so good I don't understand he really is is, he's a treasure. He is the national treasure all along. He yeah. He, he is went, the Declaration he, of Independence. Well, he me- he meant to steal the Declaration of Independence, but instead he stole all of our hearts. I knew you were going there, and I support it fully because <laughs> I thought of that too. <laughs> a Cosmic Void next week will be covering the very first Nicolas Cage movie ever. And he's credited as Nicholas Coppola, and he has a super tiny part. So, oh yeah, I forgot that he was a Coppola. Yeah, I always forget that nepotism. Curse yep. you, nepotism. Well, he allegedly changed his name to avoid nepotism, but then he was a producer on The Godfather Part Three. So, meh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both of my bosses at both of my jobs are currently employing family members, and I'm not talking about my my job the, too. Them being, yeah, I man. She's got some radically neon hair, doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> she's a little, she's a little uh, you know what? She would be perfect if she was a character in a, in a Scott Pilgrim comic book. I could see that, but I feel like that's just Gen Z in general now are all doing their hairs. In, oh, yeah. In that, in that oh, way. and even that's, that's not even just Gen Z. That's bleeding into the millennials because I had at least two or three coworkers. Yes, but I feel like. did that with the. I think, the pop- di- I think the difference is the millennials, it's like a subset of them that do it. But I feel like Gen Z will. It's all not eventually all do it. No, no. <laughs> they all have every generation is some made of them, up of subsets. Some of them live in the house. Don't. 
Some of them live in the south where they'll get beaten if they do it, so they gotta wait till they <laughs> Man, move out. In Russia, and I don't, I'm not conflating with what you're saying has nothing to do with gay people, but I'm making it about gay people now. Okay, gay people will still be out even in Russia where. Could get you executed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I get it. I'm just saying this. That's that's the percentage of the Gen Z that isn't doing it at this point. (laughs) Or they haven't figured out the hair dye yet. Like, you know, who's not doing it are the ones that aren't on TikTok or Instagram. Yeah. Like my daughter. (laughs) She's a Gen Z and she's not doing – she wants to do something. My daughter is on TikTok for sure. So there you go. And look at her hair. She's a blueberry. Yep. <laughs> like like uh, Viola. Not Viola. What's the name of the, the kid? Turns into the blueberry? Augustus Gloop. No, not Augustus Gloop. That's that's the fat German kid. Uh, Sally Ride. That's an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Violet? Violet, your hair's violet. Isn't that? I don't like fucking yeah. know. Yeah, Violet. I think it's Violet. The one that chews gum. Talk to me about Wonka. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about that old ass Wonka, your grandfather's Wonka. Oh, uh, you know, I saw this weird meme. I think that instead of going through that elaborate process of elimination, somebody needs to just go up to Willie there and just be like, hey, you, look at me. Look at me. I'm the Wonka now. <laughs> and that's it. Then that, he just shoots freaking Willie in the head. <laughs> Done. And the Oompa Loompas are free, so they ain't saying shit. Yeah, no, they're on board. (laughs) They're tired of being slave labor. They're not getting paid. They're not allowed to leave. No one has ever seen them except for the people on the tour. Yeah, in the book, he took them from where they were mistreated and like gave them like this river of chocolate and stuff, oh, but they yeah, have to slave great. away at so they him all and they're have... stuck in a factory. No, you know what happens is he gives them all diabetes and then he uses the insulin. <laughs> he uses the insulin as like the, oh, Payment. you want, do you, you need this to live. <laughs> get to work or you don't get your insulin today. I mean, let's be honest. It kind of checks out with everything else we've seen about Willy Wonka. <laughs> like, He's totally deliberately giving all of the Oompa type 2 diabetes or whichever one requires you to take insulin shots. And it's then both. He's, it's both. To type 1 means you had it at birth in, okay. and type 2 means that You've developed it, it, it developed later. Due to but you diet. S- either way, you were born with it. Let me put but it that I, way. And either way, you, you, you will probably need insulin. I thought it was your body is – it can go either way though. Sometimes you need to raise your blood sugar. Yes. Yeah, you have to keep it in like a, the proper zone. And your body normally does that naturally, but yeah, but people with diabetes. So it, the it only work I, correctly. the only difference between type one and type two is that one of them you're born with, and the other one you're not born no, with. No, you're born with both of them, but type two rears its head later. At least that's what how Brandon explained it to me. Who has diabetes? Well, I don't. Yeah, but even though he has it, I still don't know <laughs> if I trust him over WebMD. <laughs> I don't know, man. I knew a dude with hepatitis C, and he broke it all down for me. <laughs> yeah, but that's Hep C, man. Like, I'm just saying that, like, if you have, and and I'm sure that Brandon knows all about the type of diabetes that he has. But does that make him an expert on all things, all diabetes? I don't know about that. I just it, know that you he know. I I know that I assisted people with diabetes, people and Brandon that, broke it down for me. So. Well, it's just like. <laughs> He's also got a kid you know, with diabetes too. There was a guy on the internet today who was telling, trying to tell me that he lives in San Francisco 
and they have a needle exchange program there. And he sees needles all over the place. So clearly the needle exchange program isn't working. And I said, well, congratulations. I'll let all the scientists know that they can stop doing their research because you have an anecdote. <laughs> so Willie's Wonderland, <laughs> totally recommend it. Watch it. <laughs> Update to an old story previously broke on an episode. You can go back and listen to it. It's episode. <laughs> um, so I was talking in that previous episode about how all of the shows that were on the streaming service Quibi are now on Roku as Roku Originals. I remember that, dude, because I made that really funny joke about it. It was we really funny. We laughed Yeah, and like laughed. five minutes of laughter. And the update is that in the first 48 hours of being Roku Originals, these shows got watched more than the entire time that Quibi was an alive and functioning, which is just <laughs> so, <laughs> so sad. sad. Oh, what a bunch of losers they were over at Quibi. What were they thinking? What the fuck were they thinking? Like... God damn. How do you manage to lose that much money that you know, fast? You know what it <laughs> in is? In front of everybody. It, it's that the CEO <laughs> of Quibi was this tech giant for a few years. Like he steered a couple of things that were wildly successful that everybody doubted. And he had kind of lost his touch. But it was, as you know, the podcast blank check. Right. Like they talk about directors and filmographies where they have a big movie and then they just keep getting blank checks to do other movies because they're like, I don't know, this might be another one that hits the zeitgeist. Like we didn't understand the last one. And I think that's how they looked at this guy. And it was just <clears throat> when you describe Quibi to people, everybody was like, this is a fucking terrible idea. Oh, we're different because we have videos where you can watch the phone upright instead of to the side. That's ter- how people want to watch their yeah, shows. It's a terrible idea. Number so one. Number, founded- t- number two. Terrible idea. We're only going to do it in up to 15-minute segments because that's as long as it takes you to stand in a line. Clearly, somebody's never been to Disneyland. Another bad idea. <laughs> it's just a lot of bad ideas stacked on top of each other. Founded by Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was a former uh, – chairman of Walt Disney Studios from 84 to 94. Uh, He also was a co-founder and CEO of DreamWorks. Mm. So it was media. It was not technology. And it was also, no, no. See, it was also co-created by Meg Whitman, who was a board member of Procter & Gamble and General Motors and previously president and CEO of Hewlett Packard Enterprise. How much do you think they would pay to get that information off of Wikipedia? (laughs) (laughs) Check this out. The service raised $1.75 billion from investors. So almost $2 billion. It launched in April 2020, shut down in December 2020. And in January 2021, the content library was sold to Roku Incorporated for less than $100 million. <laughs> That's like 1%? 10 per- No. 2%? Right? No. Oh, my God. It's so and hard to calculate the difference between a billion and a hundred million. We'll that never is know. so much. We'll never know. Then on top of it, basically the, the not so big secret that I kept hearing over and over again is that 
everybody, when they turned down projects, they were like, go pitch it at Quibi. And Quibi would take it because like they really wanted this to work and it wouldn't get picked up by anybody else because they would see the inherent flaws in the shows immediately. Yeah. (laughs) So they were just like the people that were handing out cash for your bad ideas that nobody else would take. It was bound to fail. Uh, I got one other piece of news and then we will get out of the news hopefully in a very quick 45-minute segment. (laughs) But we'll see. Tom Spizzali, that's how you say his name. He was attached to the Watchmen Leftovers and Ash vs. the Evil Dead. He's set to showrun Silk on Amazon Prime. And it's going to be executive produced by Chris Miller and Phil Lords, who are overseeing the Spider-Man properties, live action and animated shows for Sony. Lauren Moon, who wrote Atypical, will also produce with Miller and Lords. So this is happening. This is all put in place. They are betting on Silk. And we've heard this before, but the fact that this is the first one up means that it's actually really happening, right? Like there's not going to be any cautious pullback. Because they really want to launch this. They got to make their Spider-Man stuff work. They got to keep their media arm running. So the best you got is your Marvel properties. So what do you think about this? Are you even familiar with the character Silk? A little bit. I've seen the character in bigger stories that don't aren't about her, but like include her. Spider-Verse-y stories. Because yeah. I've read some. I read the omnibus of all the uh and the Spider-Verse like, null, comic no, story. Not, yeah, Null? Was it Null? All the, the weird vampire things? Yes, yeah. That yeah. was that was the original end of the Spider-Verse. That yeah, was like yeah, the yeah. comic version, yeah. And, and then that's it's like where gone. You fi- that's where they introduced Silk, I think. And it's gotten more complicated since then with those characters. But who cares about them? I She was like kind of parallel to Peter Parker. I think she was bitten or somehow irate. I think she was bitten by the same spider, but she was kept away. She like wound they, up they in a bunker for away. like, yeah, she wound up in like a bunker for t- five years or 10 years or something like that. Maybe longer. Because they were worried about maintaining the web. They couldn't have all the spider people wiped out. So they put her in a place where she could continue the line, but she wasn't thrilled about it. She also fucked the shit out of Peter Parker over and over again from what I remember. So that was an interesting way to introduce your new they title had character. Yeah, a bunch. Oh. Yeah. What about MJ, though? Well, the thing with MJ in the comics is Dan Slotts took it over, and about 20 years ago, the uh, chief of Marvel Comics was talking like, about one I don't like, yeah, I don't like Spider-Man being married. Let's, let's undo it. So well, they come up with the when... whole thing with Mephisto. I, I didn't even do that. Like, that's just literally what happened. Mephisto, <laughs> like, undoes their marriage. Like, he says, I will keep your secret identity a secret. Nobody will know unless and... you reveal it, but you're not going to be married to MJ anymore and he says sure we'll get back together and they have never been together since then they, they always haven't? like they keep making it like they're going to get together and then it just never and fucking that's just happens. in the comics though yes but they've undone all of the continuity for so much and dan slots has written it the entire time that like you can't fix that anymore it, it, it is what it is they don't they didn't want spider-man married anymore so instead of just writing in a divorce which would have been very easy they were like let's come up with a complicated mephisto story <laughs> You know, and here's another thing too. Like, I want to reference another thing. This is an interest is a makes me think of interesting. When we were talking about Batman last week or whatever, people keep saying like DC Comics is drawing the line at Cunnilingus or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Drawing the line, like you can come up to here but no further. And 
would you describe them saying is like, we draw the line at Spider-Man getting married? You wouldn't say that. No, they just say, Spider-Man, we don't want Spider-Man to be married. What, I, you have an issue? <clears throat> Does I, that I know, mean I know that what his issue Marvel was. Comics has a problem with marriage because they don't want Fantastic their character Four. to get married? No. I, I mean, I'm, I know that it's an ex- – it's like – it's not an isolated I, I know example. What, I know what you're saying. I'm you're saying, saying people are giving the benefit so of the doubt easy. to Marvel. It's, I'm just saying it's so easy to take one statement and create this blanket ethical belief system for a corporation. Like, what the fuck are we even talking about when we're debating what DC Comics does or does not want? DC Comics is not an entity with its own thoughts and feelings and emotions. It's a conglomerate of a bunch of different people that all are different places on the sexual, genetic, moral spectrum. That's why I was pointing out the four CEOs in five years or whatever it is, they're constantly turning over their standards and practices, I'm sure, Yeah. along with everybody at the top. So it's just changing, changing, changing. The reason why I said this about Spider-Man is because you have Dan Slotts has created this like very elaborate continuity in The Amazing Spider-Man. And by the way, the Mephisto thing is not his fault. I don't blame him for this because it was literally the editor said, I don't want Spider-Man married anymore. You have like a month to take care of it. You can't like write a fucking divorce story in a month and have it out on the stand. So they just go with the quick fix. You like fix the one thing from Secret Wars that they're worried about having hang on, which is like his identities out there. Not Secret wars i'm sorry uh civil war and so he does this quick fix and it's a terrible choice it is what it is and dan slots has also been writing spider-man for 20 years he's not my favorite but he's not terrible either he's got a lot of good stories like that whole inner end of the spider-verse story is his you know what about the whole superior spider-man yeah that's all him it's all him. I actually did like that. I wanted to bit. hate it and I enjoyed it so much that I hated myself a little bit for enjoying it. And then when I realized they were having fun with the audience too, because they were like, you know, we're going to bring them back. And we know yeah. that, you know, we're going to bring them back. So yeah. let's just have a fun time with it. And that's when I was just like, all right, you got Dude, me. The arc where he like becomes the hero <laughs> at the end, by the time Superior Spider-Man is gone. Guys, I think he winds up sacrificing himself for the greater good. Yeah. At the end of one of the Spider-Verse storylines. No, it's okay. It's before that because he is very much a villain in the Spider-Verse story. But he real he sacrifices himself in the actual story, I think, at some point. No, maybe it is in the end of Spider-Verse story. Because actually, he goes out like a bitch in, in the, the Sinister Spider-Man line. So never mind. No, I think that it. this is a long, and it's a long ways down the road, like, much later. And I think that it's because we're at a point at this where, like, there's three dozen different Spider-Men all in a room. Yeah. And they're like, which one of us is going to be like the leader? And Superior Spider-Man is like, fucking right here. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's a dick. Because he's Duck Hawk. <laughs> well, and I will say, so this is why I don't blame Dan Slots for this marriage thing that happened. Because I think when you give him time, he actually does come up with a good story. They were basically like, we know that Peter's always late for things and fucks up things. And that's fine. But we're kind of at a point where, like, newspapers are dying. We don't really want him to have the photographer job anymore. It didn't totally make sense before. It makes less sense as time goes on and as newspapers are becoming extinct. So he's always been a scientist. Why don't we just make him a scientist? And Dan Slots takes his time, 
to like use this Dr. Octopus thing as an opportunity. I really feel like that's why this storyline happened where he was like, I'm going to put Peter Parker in a good position. And the only way to do that is to not have Peter Parker in charge of his faculties to put himself in that position because he'll always fuck it up because he's so dedicated to being Spider-Man. He lets his whole life melt down. And so I thought it was really good writing when he did that. The Mephisto thing sucked. I don't remember why we got off on this in the first place. <laughs> silk. But yeah, Silk. Yeah, I feel like we hit it. Should we go into the deep dive? Sure. I wanted to talk about the evolution of sex comedies, which then devolved and then started to evolve again. I was studying this because I'm doing Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which was Nicolas Cage's first movie. And I came up with this thing where I was reading it and starting to make connections and really think about how they changed over the years. In multiple directions. And I realize this is not really good for that podcast, but this would be a good deep dive. So it essentially starts with The Last Picture Show. So this is a Peter Bogdanovich movie. He did the movie Mask, which we talked about uh, on Box Office Battle when we used to have that going. He did Paper Moon. Like, he's he's done a ton of movies. Like, really good director. He's on The Sopranos. He plays the psychiatrist, psychiatrist. He makes this movie, which is a drama. It's not a comedy. But it's about teenagers dealing with their sexuality. And they have some mix of adults in it. It winds up, like, on the AFI's Top 100 list. It gets nominated for, I think, 10 Oscars. Like, it's very successful. Not a comedy, but it's definitely, like, a coming-of-age story where they're looking back at it and they have all the touchstones of what would hit in a sex comedy and what's really interesting about it is when you look at it it's like Sybil Shepard's character for example is like the girl that everybody has a thing for and she has all these sexual relationships but they don't really bring shame into it with her or anything like that she's got agency and she's looking around and she's okay experimenting with different things and she's actually kind of mature with her sexuality which you don't see in a lot of these things that doesn't sound like a teen sex comedy no but then you have these idiot characters who are going to mexico there we go right so you have that playing in it and they're kind of juxtapositioning her with like jeff bridge's character and Timothy Bottoms character. So this is like half of a teen sex comedy. Yeah, I think the seeds for what would become yeah. sex comedies are So here. then what's the first full-on one? I would say Porkies? I think it's Porkies. Ugh. And so Porkies, you start to get the real on the edge. It starts like, to get raunchy. Yeah, you get the almost rapey vibes with things. But then on top of it, the actual story, the main story that's going through Porkies is they're trying to sneak in a strip club and then they get the shit beaten out of them and their money taken from them because they're not supposed to be in there because they're underage. And so it's this revenge story where they're trying to get revenge on the guy who runs the club, right? The sex is on the side. And it's kind of there to keep people in the seats, but like it's not the main story. So then you have Fast Times at Ridgemont High drop the very next year. And when that happens, it changes the game for sex comedies forever. Like that marriage of Porky's and Fast Times at Ridgemont High kind of cements what these movies are going to be. Screwballs. Don't forget Screwballs. We'll get to – well, kind of. The, screwballs is it's like – the born, Canadian – It's like born out of this. It's literally the Canadian ripoff. It's, right. it's Canadian. <laughs> but Fast Times at Ridgemont High, without stepping on it too much because I'm doing it for a cosmic void, it's really examining high schoolers and it's – Cameron Crowe wrote it based off of his experience is going back to high school when he was 22, pretending he was a student, writing everything he saw and turning it into a book. He then writes a screenplay for this. Amy Heckerling, 
directs it. And they really hyper-focus in the movie on how these teenagers' sex lives kind of work and how they're not ready for sex. They're trying things. You know, they're muddling their way through. And there's four sex scenes in them. They're all incredibly awkward. All of them are very awkward. And it's kind of a brilliant movie, and it's got really good performances. Now, what happens from the 80s through the 90s is you get movies like My Tutor is a good example or Screwballs, right? Meatballs. They basically... Oh, no, dude. Meatballs is 1979, dude. Meatballs is not a sex comedy. I think like all the other Meatballs are. I don't think the first one is really a sex comedy. It's more of just a comedy. It's like kids at a camp, like literal kids, and then like Bill Murray is the counselor who has a very weird relationship and like hangs out with them all the time and is like the funny guy to him. Like I would not trust Bill Murray with my kids in that movie. <laughs> Counselors are fucking each other. I don't really remember that. I remember that being kind of more of a family film, but okay. Anyway, so like the marriage of like Porky's and Fast Times is what creates the 80s and 90s of sex comedies. We're going to throw away the main plot of Porky's. Like we're going to throw away this like side plot where like they have like real stakes like a movie. Trash that. We're going to focus on their sex lives like they do in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But we're going to do like the gross, vulgar sex shit that is in Porky's, right? So they're like marrying these two things together. So you get movies like My Tutor or you get movies like American Pie or you get movies like... Weird Science. Yeah, sure. Weird Science. Like all of those are all based off of that alchemy of like, forget about your usual movie plots. It's going to be about people trying to get laid. Sure. Although that's like college but i was thinking like teen sex comedy but yeah i mean that's i mean you could still be a teenager in college i guess they're probably like 18 right because they just go to college yeah your first two years of college or 18 and 19 go into college straight out of high school what i'm saying is in the 80s the 90s it gets regressive right like they boiled it down to this formula where it's basically it goes in the theater might have a good run might not but it doesn't matter because you're just banking on it going on video and hbo and having people buy it because they want to see tits right like that's basically what it comes down to and so there's a whole industry built off of that then you start to hit the turning point after sometime after like van wilder American Pie, all of that. You finally get Super Bad. Now, Super Bad is in the vein of the other ones in that, like, it is kids off to get laid. You think that the American Pie, Van Wilder, Out Cold, um, that that is a continuation of the D evolution? Yes. Because I think those I are think it de- highly and just more goes evolved in than Porky. Those movies, while not very evolved themselves, I think are far more evolved than their predecessor. I think. Like I thought, you said there was. I an, think it's new version of the same old shit. Let me put it that way. No, I think they're smarter. I think Van Wilder is smarter. I don't, dude. Van Wilder is awful. Every part of it is awful. It's dude. not though, and it's so cookie cutter, dude. It's just like a douchey guy who talks fast. He's who not gets douchey. Laid all the time. He is a fucking douche. He's, he's not though. You're letting your feelings for Ryan Reynolds not at like, all overtake. Not this. at all. No, no. He, that Van Wilder was so douchey. I could hardly watch it back in 2000. Only, he, I could okay, still hardly there is watch it. One thing that he does. There's one single thing that he does that is uh like a malicious prank and it's be- and he does it to the guys that have been fucking with him for the entire movie and it's when he put gets a dog I'm jerk. not talking about the character I'm talking about the entire movie <laughs> No I'm <laughs> You you're saying the movie is douchey? Yeah, it's a fucking douchey movie. I I feel like most of these sex comedies no, are douchey. I think that there 
are levels to this. There's levels, but what I'm trying to say is this marriage of like taking out the elements away from sex from these two mm -hmm. movies is what spawned this entire industry for like 20 something years. They're all basing off of that formula from that point. But I mean, going straight to super bad as like a turning point. I, I like, don't know that it's the turning point, or but even, it's among the turning points. And I'll say it because of this, okay? It is what those other ones are. But what it also has is, is it people has- people that you really like. <laughs> no, it has a character who is gay and who's trying to like come out of the closet, but doesn't know how. And all of a sudden they're introducing, we're going to talk about something else than the usual heteronormative, like let's just fuck everything that moves that we saw from there. It's not a big turning point, but it is a turning point. Like when that movie hits so big, you just have this little seed that's in there. And then that seed just continues to grow from that point. I'm not saying like it's so much better than the other movies. It's not. I've seen Superbad once. That's it. I don't find it as hilarious as everybody else did. There are guys I really like in it. I never thought Superbad was a classic for me. There's other ones that they've been involved with that were classics. I wouldn't list that among them. Well, like in the timeline of teen sex comedies and I guess movies that are teen sex comedy adjacent as well. I just feel like this is a maybe this is an oversimplification of the evolution slash de-evolution of the teen sex comedy because we're not taking into account when uh, not another teen movie came out. But it's just a, but that's a parody. Is, but it's also it's not but it really a sex comedy. To be a functional teen sex but it's, comedy. It's a meta comedy that's making fun of a genre. So it's so it's got it's. In a it's way, no different than scary layer. movie. It's, it's got one additional layer, which is that it is meta. I would say it's got more akin to scary movie than it does to an actual teen movie. They're just pointing out stuff and they're making jokes about it. And it's really silly. It and is a meta movie you, that's making fun of sex comedies. We You've mentioned earlier off mic that there was an evolution and de-evolution. Does, are you saying that like there was maybe a little peak – during the, like, Breakfast Club era? I don't think Breakfast Club is a sex comedy. I think it's kind of a dramedy. But it's like... The point of it isn't sex. The point the of it point, is that they're stuck in detention but there, and they got to deal with each There is a other. lot of... They're horny teenagers. They are horny teenagers, but it's not a and sex comedy. And I would comedy. say that, like... I think sex comedies are, like, revolved around sex. I don't think 16 Candles or, like... Well, sex... Where, what about like, I don't think Euro most John trip. Hughes movies will like fit in it. Road Trip? Euro Trip. Yeah, I think you could classify it. Road Trip, sure. Because with Road Trip, it's not like they're on the road to have sex. No, but they're, they're on the road to get away, like to get a porn tape away a from tape. a girl. Yeah, so it's it's all revolved around sex when you boil it down, right? Like you start with the sex and then like they're having sex on the Is way. Is New Girl a teen sex comedy? Or New Guy, sorry, New Guy. The one with DJ Qualls and Eliza Dushku. I want to say it is, but I really haven't seen it since it came out. It's got a whole – the whole – the theme of that movie is like uh, a kid that's getting bullied reinvents himself right. at a new school. And I can't remember it well enough. And then to he say. almost like – I mean sometimes these movies have one character that is sex obsessed. Mm -hmm. You know, and then the other kids are dealing with 
mature things and like the comedy relief kid is the one that's a wants just wants to get laid or something right but all the kids that wouldn't are necessarily say like well okay yeah if, if i think if sex is the centerpiece of it then it's like a sex comedy like is sex somehow the driving factor behind this movie that's how you figure and it ultimately out. i get that teen implies a specific age range of 13 to 19 nowadays you're baby till you're like 35 it can be a teen sex comedy and it can be like a waiting i would classify waiting as a teen sex comedy even though not everybody's a teen i haven't but it's also a movie for let me let me be clear i haven't seen waiting i knew about two or three scenes so i was just like no fuck that and i was also like stop shoving ryan reynolds down my throat like i don't want it (laughs) like up until like right before deadpool came out i was like fuck ryan reynolds fuck you fuck you fuck you i want no part of it he's charming sure I th- but I think they, they put him in a lot of shitty movies before that. Like, as far as I was concerned, you could put Waiting on the Justin Burning Justin Long is way more But, like, isn't Waiting a gross-out comedy? Waiting is a comedy about degenerates that work in a restaurant. Uh-huh. And there are all sorts of different kinds of degenerates. But there is a gross-out scene. I don't okay. think – I wouldn't classify the whole movie as a gross-out movie. I've just always heard it movie. as a gross-out comedy, and especially because people always talk about okay, the one Okay, this scene. is why. There's the scene where all – they go down the line and they put all the pubic hair and shit from – and they right. spit in the food, which uh, I don't personally see the humor in a joke like that because I work in food service. Yeah, and I do that too. Offends my, <laughs> that offends my code of honor as a food service employee. Yep. Like you – I wouldn't want anybody to do that to me. I wouldn't do that to anybody. I don't want to work with anybody who would do that That with somebody. It's even capable of it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even want to work with somebody that thinks it might be a thing to do maybe if Hitler walked in and you had to serve Hitler. You know? I'm not going to do that. I'm I'm like the food service equivalent of the barber that shaves the fucking dictator and, like, doesn't slit his throat because he's a good barber before he's a revolutionary. Yeah. I think I read that with the Civil War. It's, uh, it's like story. the Mexican Revolution. Is it's that a what his, it is? It's like a, a famous historical story about this, like... I bet I read I think a whitewashed version Santa, of it. Uh, uh, <laughs> the guy... Yeah, anyways. Whoever the guy was that, like, killed all the Alamo motherfuckers. The, the Mexican general that, like, went, Oh, they're making their last stand here at the Alamo. Let's fuck kill them all. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, We're going to die with our guns blazed. Boo, boo. All right, well... Tangent upon tangent, I just wanted to kind of finish my thought on this. Like, I just feel like super bad where it changes it is like they just tweak the formula a tiny bit. They start being like, it's not all about oh, these like but, horny white teens. Okay. On that point, though, what about, but I'm a cheerleader. That's a teen sex comedy. Yeah. And, and it's an independent one that definitely that's, subverts. And see, that's, I think, but that's I don't the think key. it's ever gotten okay. traction because most people don't but know about it. This is the thing is that I think maybe teen sex comedies made a shift from being stupid. Studio-led driven productions that followed a form a strict formula mm-hmm. to indie-led projects led by people that fucking had were like, I can tell a better fucking story than. All right, well, why don't why don't I reframe this as talking about mainstream sex comedies? Because everything I've talked about here is mainstream until you brought up. But I'm a cheerleader, which is definitely independent and definitely well, did not leave a giant but mark on the culture. Super bad was definitely an indie movie. No. Wasn't it? No. No. It was it's definitely like... a studio comedy. And it was just because Bill Hader had some juice, like because he was on Saturday Night Live. So they're like, I don't know. He seems to like it. Regar- like... Regardless, I really want to finish my point, dude. Okay. <laughs> like I'm so close. So now you cut to right now, and I think that the sex comedies. You will get your stuff for your streamers that are 
much like the 80s and 90s stuff was. And there are there is garbage out there. But the ones that kind of rise to the top are ones like Blockers, for example. Like Blockers is set up like a typical teen sex comedy. And it's these parents who are trying to stop them from losing their virginity. But along the way, they remember like, oh, yeah, we made mistakes and we should sort of let them have their agency and let them have the mistakes. And, you know, it, it, it goes down that route and they're exploring it from a different angle. And then I think like, Book smart is where it sort of has hit the highest point of the evolution of these, which is it's these two teenage girls that decide they're going to lose their virginity. They were always kind of nerds and they want to go out and party and lose their virginity. And they explore all sorts of stuff, not in the way that you would think that they would explore. They explore all kinds of relationships. I don't think either of them get laid, but it's not like a like a biblical choice where like you're going to get punished if you don't have sex or whatever just unfolds differently than I thought it would. And I think that they've evolved quite a bit from where they started. So it's just kind of interesting watching how it started at this high watermark, just really fucking dip down and it's just making this slow rise back. And so my prediction is like in 20 years, filthy, filthy as shit again. Yeah. It's not already getting back to that with like Netflix teen sex comedies. Like I said, those are still around, but I'm talking about like the high water marks. Well, the, like high the ones water that marks... make an impact, the ones that people talk about. Oh, I was going to say nowadays there are lots of teen sex comedies that get a lot of critical acclaim, but maybe not make a huge impact like uh, Booksmart. I, Booksmart won awards. I literally just finished talking about Booksmart, dude. That was my last movie I brought up. <laughs> You talked about it or you just mentioned it? I literally talked about it for like two well, minutes. I was trying to look up the – I know. The box – I was trying to look up how much it cost to make Superbad. It had a budget of $20 million. Yeah, that's a studio comedy, dude. Ain't no – like no comedy for $20 million is in Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg started the script when they were 13 years old. Yeah. I don't know if it – it's like – I don't know if Who I Who made it? Who put it out? Greg Matola. Yeah, I'm talking the studio, man. Oh, I can't see that. I don't know. Where does that show up on IMDb? Where does it Uh, say? I don't know if it does show up on IMDb, but you just have to put it in and look at the poster. (laughs) It's on the poster? Always. Oh, right. Okay, look at the poster. Well, it says, from the guy who brought you the 40-year-old virgin and Talladega Nights. Judd Apatow. That means it's studio comedy for sure. Apatow works in the system. It's Columbia Pictures. I'm looking at it. Distributed? No, it's just Columbia Pictures. Yeah. That... Apatow Productions, Columbia Pictures. So that's so, what they do. They like. So Apatow produced it, Columbia distributed it. It's probably column A, column B. The bigger ones, you like bring in a production company and they're making it for you, but they're also giving you their money to like make this. So they're like pulling the strings, right? Like well, that's, I get the that's how that... like Bloomhouse exists, for example. Like Bloomhouse is associated with one of the big media companies, but they only make movies for $5 million because he knows that's the line that we can get away with doing this without any interference whatsoever if we don't go over a $5 million budget. So literally every Blumhouse movie, the top price tag is $5 million. Or less, probably. Probably the cheaper you can get it, the better your chances are of getting that project off the ground over there. Yeah. So do you have anything for the verses or are we, are we I don't done? know if we need to do a verses today. We're at an hour 13. Right. <laughs> so, uh, okay. For verses, how about we just say this whole episode has been a verses? And it kinda ha- I definitely just the sex comedy doubled as a verses. I don't know about that. 
Yeah, I, I said I won first, so that means I win. Okay, why don't we do this? One, two, three, I win. Why don't we do this? We'll three, two, one, a, I win. We'll do a hashtag on Instagram. Ten nine eight seven six five four three two one. I win. You did, I gave Hash, you a ta- hashtag Alex wins. Hashtag Carl wins. <laughs> nice. And then we'll tabulate and let you know the next episode. <laughs> so hashtag Alex wins. Hashtag Carl wins. Pick your winner. <laughs> I already have. I've already created seven alternate Twitter accounts. I'll send my Russian robots. You think <laughs> I have bots. to work on it? <laughs> I have the Russian Twitter army, bot army. Bye. Bye. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. Follow us or reach out on Instagram at NSF underscore network, Facebook's Not Safe for Network page, or email Not Safe for Network podcast at gmail.com. Not Safe for Network was created and hosted by Carl Borneman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Alex Small. Subscribe to all the podcasts on our network. Season 3 of Movies with Wrestlers has Eric and Connor answering the question on everyone's mind. Who's better, The Rock or John Cena? Every week, a cosmic void has Jeremiah and Biggs deconstructing influential movies. Not Safe for Network examines the zeitgeist through rabbit holes, deep dives, interviews, and pop culture battles weekly. And if you need some classic TV talk, catch up on the previous three seasons of In Syndication.